We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday for June 21st, 2022. Sitting in today for Chuck Buck is Dennis Jones. And batting for Eric Arima this morning is Susan Gatehouse. We're brought to you by Find a Code, home of the most complete and easy-to-use software for medical coders, helping to save time, increase revenue, and avoid denials. Check it out at findacode.com slash talk10. Today, we welcome nationally recognized professional coder, auditor, and consultant Terry Fletcher with important news about Modifier 25. We'll get the latest coding news from Lori Johnson. Dr. John Zellum reveals another entry in his feature, Journaling John M.D. Tim Powell is at the Tuesday News Desk, and Susan Gatehouse delivers her personal point of view. Now here's the Administrator of Patient Financial Services at Montefiore Nyack Hospital in New York, and the co-host of today's Talk 10 Tuesday, Dennis Jones. Well, thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 512th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And good morning, Susan. Good morning, Dennis, and thank you. And hello to everyone. It's a pleasure to be here today. And Susan, I want to thank you again for sitting in for Dr. Erica Reamer. Erica is with her father today, which I find so refreshing, given that Sunday was Father's Day. Yes, it was. It was a beautiful day. And also, it's National Employee Wellness Month. I think it's important to bring up. And last week was World Elder Abuse Week. So June brings several dedicated days to raise awareness for several causes. You're right, Susan. And I'm thinking about Erica Reamer and her father and how fortunate he is to have Erica, that's Dr. Erica Reamer, as his daughter. Well, as a daughter whose father is still living, I'm fortunate to be able to ensure he receives the care that he needs and and keeps moving. You are like a personal patient advocate, given your hospital experience. And folks, I hope you all enjoyed a happy Father's Day. Mine was more reflective. I'm missing my father a lot. But here's to all the dads and the bad dad jokes. A post-Happy Father's Day to all you fellow dads. We have so much news to report, and we begin with Tim Powell, who is at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. Thanks. I just wanted to go back to the 340B drug program that I was talking about last week. Uh, Summarizing a recent case, the pharmaceutical companies in 2020, as the COVID pandemic roared, began to refuse to give discounts on drugs that were purchased and distributed by 340B-covered entities using contract pharmacies. The drug companies began refusing to honor 340B discounts unless the drugs were purchased and dispensed by the covered entity. Now, of course, most, particularly rural hospitals and most 340B drug recipients do not operate their own in-house pharmacy. My opinion, and that of the American Hospital Association, that there was no language in the 340B regulation requiring that only pharmacies operated by the 340B provider be allowed to benefit from such pricing. Well, I have a happy update. The high court ruled unanimously in favor of the hospitals. Justice Brett Kavanaugh wrote for the court, that absent a survey of hospitals' acquisition costs, the Department of Health and Human Services may not vary reimbursement rates for 340B hospitals. HHS's 2018 and 2019 reimbursement rates for 340B hospitals were therefore contrary to statute and unlawful. I just also want to make a point that, that, the, that currently the pharmacies are actually competing with uh, rural providers adding an extra strain to an already struggling group. And so I think that it's time that we, that we consider uh, antitrust legislation potentially in terms of how pharmacies are allowed to participate as they move into the market to provide health care to particularly rural providers. And with that, back to you. 
Thanks, Tim. That was Tim Powell, consultant with Bessler Consulting, and he's also the national correspondent for ICD-10 Monitor. It's Tuesday, June 21st, and you're listening to the 512th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. The extensive resources available from Find-A-Code make finding the correct codes easier than ever, allowing you to process more claims more accurately and in less time. Find-A-Code lets you build a flexible, personalized package of tools that specifically meet your needs. Choose one of three subscription levels, then customize your subscription by adding more specific code references, guides, policies, reports, and exclusive Find-A-Code tools. You get the most value for your money by buying only what you need. Find-A-Code's online libraries include extensive information for all major code sets, along with a wealth of supplemental materials such as newsletters and manuals. It's all indexed, searchable, and organized for quick access and extensive cross-referencing. Find-A-Code, the most complete and easy-to-use software for coding professionals, helping to save time, increase revenue, and avoid denials. See everything Find-A-Code has to offer at findacode.com slash talk10. That's findacode.com slash talk10. Now's the time for the Talk 10 Tuesday's Coding Report with Lori Johnson. Good morning, Dennis. Good morning, Susan. And hello to our listeners. Today, I'm picking up where I left off last week in talking about the changes in the fiscal year 23 ICD-10-CM guidelines. So we're going to pick up at Chapter 4, which is the Endocrine, Nutritional, and Metabolic Diseases Chapter. This chapter has an update for diabetes. The update is that is the change in the code for long-term use of injectable non-insulin anti-diabetic drug, which was changed from Z79.899 to Z79.85. So from an unspecific code to a very specific code. In Chapter 5, which is the Mental Health, Behavioral, and Neurodevelopmental Disorders, there is a new guideline for dementia. The guidelines state that dementia is classified on the basis of etiology and severity. The selection of the appropriate severity level requires providers' clinical judgment, and the code should be assigned only on the basis of provider documentation unless otherwise instructed by the classification. If the, if the patient change, changes severity, in dementia during the stay, assign the code for the highest severity level only. The next update can be found under Chapter 15, Pregnancy, Childbirth, and Purpurium. And the title is Completed Weeks of Gestation. Um, and this has been added. This guideline states that the completed weeks refers to full weeks. For example, 39 weeks and six days should be coded as 39 weeks of gestation. There has been another guideline added titled hemorrhage following elective abortion. The guideline directs the coder to assign 004.6 delayed or excessive hemorrhage following termination of pregnancy and not 072.1 other immediate postpartum hemorrhage. Do not assign Z33.2 and counter for elective termination of pregnancy when the patient experiences a complication post-elective abortion. 
Chapter 19, Injury, Poisoning, and Certain Other Consequences of External Causes, has an update for underdosing. This update states that the documentation of a change in the patient condition is not required to assign the underdosing code. Documentation that the patient is taking less of a medication than prescribed or discontinued the medication is sufficient for the code assignment. The next update is under Chapter 21, Factors Influencing Health Status and Contact with Health Services. The update can be found under Social Determinants of Health. Assign as many Social Determinants of Health codes as are necessary to describe all the problems or risk factors that the patient has. These codes are only assigned when documentation specifies that the patient has an associated problem or risk factor. For example, not everyone living alone would be assigned Z60.2 problems related to living alone. And that is the last of the guideline updates for fiscal year 23. I see the guideline for dementia as impacting the CDI staff um, so that they can get that specific severity um, captured for the data. Um, many of these codes were assigned CC status with proposed rule, so it's going to be interesting to see what final rule for fiscal year 23 holds. And with that, Susan, I will turn it back to you. Thanks, Laurie. Lots of specificity, and the word documentation correlates quite nicely with that, so a lot of good information. Thank you so much. That was Laurie Johnson. Laurie is a senior healthcare consultant at Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Here now, with our new segment called Journaling John, MD, is Dr. Zellum with another entry in his journal. Good morning, Dennis, and good morning to everybody. Uh, first of all, there seems to be a lot of excitement on this 340B payment cuts uh, Supreme Court ruling, and um, some of my comments may be duplicative to what Tim Powell already presented, uh, but uh, it, it's, it's all part of trying to get a better understanding. So on Wednesday, June 15, 2022, the United States Supreme Court sided with hospital groups in a case challenging the 340B payment cuts by HHS over the past years. The American Hospital Association and other interested parties challenged the 2018 and 2019 reimbursement rates in a federal case, in a federal court in the case American Hospital Association et al. v. Bercera, Secretary of Health and Human Services et al. The case centered around whether CMS has the authority to make cuts to the program under its Medicare outpatient prospective payment system. Under the payment rule, HHS cut the reimbursements rate for covered drugs by 28.5% in 2018, <clears throat> excuse me, but it later lowered the reimbursement rate cut to 22.5%, which is essentially a $1.6 billion annual reimbursement cut. <clears throat> Justice Brett Kavanaugh, writing the opinion for the court's unanimous decision, said that absent a survey of hospitals' acquisition costs, HHS may not vary the reimbursement rate for 340B hospitals. Quote, HHS's 2018-2019 reimbursements rates for 340B hospitals were therefore contrary to the statute and unlawful, end of quote. He wrote, 
and also stated that, quote, 340B hospitals perform valuable services for low-income and rural communities, but have to rely on limited federal funding for support, end of quote. Maureen Testoni, head of a group representing 1,400 hospitals across the country, applauded the U.S. Supreme Court for making the correct decision in striking down these Medicare cuts. Some safety net hospitals have reported being forced to eliminate or to scale back services to patients in need because of the reductions that have been in place since 2018. 340B Health President and CEO said in a statement, quote, as Justice Kavanaugh wrote for the court, we look forward to the next stage of the process involving remedies for hospitals that have been affected by these unlawful cuts. We also renew our call for, the, for CMS to abandon its policy of targeting 340B drugs for lower payment rates as it works to propose Medicare rates for 2023, end of quote. Here is some background for those of you who may not be aware of what is the 340B program. Congress created the 340B drug pricing program in 1992 to protect safety net hospitals from escalating drug prices by allowing them to purchase outpatient drugs at a discount from manufacturers. In 2019, more than 2,500 hospitals participated in the program. The 340B program enables covered entities to stretch scare federal resources as far as possible, reaching more eligible patients and providing more comprehensive services. A hospital typically pays 20% to 50% below the average sales price for the drugs through the program. Going forward, the American Hospital Association, Association of American Medical Colleges, and America's Essential Hospitals look forward to working with HHS and the courts to develop a plan to reimburse 340B hospitals affected by the cuts while ensuring other hospitals are not disadvantaged as they also continue to serve their communities. Back to you, Susan. Thanks, John. That was Dr. John Bellum, founder and CEO of Streamline Solutions Consulting. And he's a physician advisor for Cameron Memorial Community Hospital. Dennis? Thank you both. You're listening to the 512th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. When can you report both evaluation and management, E&M, and a procedure in the same patient encounter? It's one of the most common questions from coders. One misstep, and you could be looking at a payer denial or edit, even when the charges are truly legitimate. The key to capturing payment for both services is knowing when the provider has delivered a significant and separately identifiable E&M service and having the documentation to prove it. Join us for an exclusive ICD-10 Monitor webcast where you'll learn what constitutes a significant and separately identifiable E&M service and what documentation you need to support it. This important webcast is tomorrow, June 22nd at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now at the ICD University Bookstore. Later in this broadcast, you'll hear the point of view of Susan Gatehouse. Coming up next is our lead story being reported by Terry Fletcher. This segment of Talk 10 Tuesday is sponsored by Find-A-Code, home of the most complete and easy-to-use software for medical coders helping to save time, increase revenue, and avoid denials. More online at findacode.com slash talk10. Here now is Terry Fletcher. 
Good morning, Dennis. Good morning, listeners. So you may have heard that payers are on the warpath again when it comes to billing an E&M visit and a minor procedure or service on the same date and using a 25 modifier in the office visit to reflect a significant separately identifiable service. Well, to remember, in January 2018, Anthem Blue Cross of Colorado and an Indianapolis-based Anthem Blue Cross and Blue Shield announced it would reduce payment for an office visit by 50% when billed on the same date as a minor procedure. Then about two months later, after state medical associations complained, they agreed to lower the size of its planned payment cut from 50% to 25% and eventually did rescind the new policy after much scrutiny. Well, this and other new burdensome policies are back to rear their ugly heads again, and it is imperative that providers contact their associations to try and put a stop to this, or you will see significant cuts to your reimbursement coming up this summer. Beginning on August 1st, 2022, there will be significant cuts in reimbursements for physicians in this scenario. Horizon Blue Cross of New Jersey and its affiliates under the Medicare Advantage plans, Braven Health and New Jersey State plans are considering E&M services appended with modifier 25 at a 50% of the appropriate Horizon allowance if one or more procedures that have a global surgery period of 09, 010, or 90 days are included on the same claim or another claim for that date of service. Anthem Blue Cross also announced they're revisiting the same policy as did United Healthcare. The reduction targets E&M services, again, billed with a 25 modifier when performed on the same date by the same provider as a minor surgical procedure or a preventative wellness exam. Appropriate use of the 25 modifier facilitates provision of unscheduled medically necessary care and consequently prompts diagnosis and streamlined treatment. Physicians' efforts to provide patient-centric care will be disrupted by implementation of these policies. Health insurers that reduce or deny payment for E&M services associated with procedures performed on the same day are needlessly forcing patients to multiple visits and delaying the provision of necessary care. Another caveat, in late May, Cigna announced that it will begin requiring the submission of medical records with all evaluation and management claims uh, with CPT codes 99212 to 215, which are established patient visits, and modifier 25 when a minor procedure is billed. Modifier 25 is supposed to allow separate payment for a significant, separately identifiable E&M service provided on the same day as a minor procedure. The updated signal policy will become effective nationwide August 13th. Failure to submit the required medical records will result in a denial of the E&M service. So we're at a time when the incentives are to get primary care physicians to perform minor procedures and that more often than not, these are done as an adjunct and separate service to the medical management of patients. Insurers are offering to underpay physicians now when there's no reduction in the RVU skills or work required. There's no reduction in the work RVU. The overhead and malpractice RVUs have remained unchanged. So this makes no fiscal sense to a physician. If the primary care physician or specialist can provide the service and get paid 100% of the allowable under these new policies, they would need to inconvenience the patient with another visit. Many physicians would simply what I call turf this patient to a general surgeon, dermatologist, or other specialist to avoid the inconvenience. Such moves are allowed by contract, but these are just unconscionable decisions made unilaterally by payers without negotiation. Are there times when an ENM should not be billed with a planned minor procedure? Yes. If you have a patient scheduled to come in for a procedure or service, and then an additional ENM would not be appropriate unless another diagnosis or another unanticipated problem was addressed and the patient was worked up, then it would be allowed. Same with a preventative visit on the same date as an ENM. 
They can't be planned together. But the payers are trying to make a blanket move to block your reimbursement with a 25 modifier for all claims when it is supposed to protect your ENM, not penalize you for using it. Or they want you to add attachments for each claim pre-build or you're going to see denials. My advice, review your current contracts, check your payer websites for new policy implementation and dates, and get in touch with the AMA or your specialty associations to fight this change. If you don't, other payers will follow. Here in California, CMA is already working to shut this down. So good luck to you on that. And with that, back to you, Susan. Thank you, Terry. Lots of good recommendations. That was Terry Fletcher, nationally recognized professional coder, auditor, and consultant. Now's the time for our segment that features our guest co-host. It's called Point of View. So here now, with her point of view, is Susan Gatehouse. Thank you, Dennis. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, there are several initiatives that June brings awareness to, and one of them is celebrating National Professional Employee Wellness this month. It's celebrated every year in the month of June, focusing on the importance of personal well-being and health in the workplace. People are one of the most primary determinants of success of any organization and often can be the significant differentiator. When your team is healthy, more balanced, and content, they tend to be more productive. Furthermore, people with a healthy, balanced work environment tend to exhibit higher job job satisfaction and are ultimately more likely to stay with your organization. So creating this type of balance of wellness in the workplace can certainly be tricky, even more so in the virtual environment many organizations operate in today. Some organizations view professional employee wellness as a year-round initiative by implementing a corporate movement and mindfulness program. These are gaining in popularity across all business sectors. Corporate wellness provides a range of activities from gentle movement, stretching, breathing exercises to various focus and meditation techniques. This initiative aims to provide a holistic approach to flexibility and health. Studies show that stretching and meditation help reduce stress levels and promote creativity. These programs are successfully revitalizing to staff and it's also proven to be a great team building experience. Creating a healthy work environment for employees starts with encouraging the practice of self-care and providing tools and resources to explore ways to improve valued team members' physical, mental, and emotional well-being. Employee wellness programs are becoming more mainstream and companies today have stated not only because it's a way to attract talent, but also it's been proven to increase productivity and creativity. Many studies have shown organizations that have emphasized professional wellness tend to be more successful long-term because of the positive effects this has on driving employee retention. The key to having a successful wellness program at work is encouraging overall wellness while still having fun. The goal is to engage team members, so be sure to make your initiatives lively, experiment with different ideas, and see what your team values the most. Doing some simple physical activity ever so often can increase wellness and raise your team's productivity. Encourage 10-minute breaks to get up, move around, grab a water, and just regenerate. Companies will always benefit when they take their wellness seriously. When there is a focus on wellness and health of employees, an organization becomes stronger, and the quest for high employee contentment can be achieved across the board. With that said, back to you, Dennis. Thanks, Susan. Now let's take a couple of minutes 
to answer some of the questions we've been receiving. This is Terry Fletcher. I had a question from Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. Do we reach out to our local medical society? Yes, that is important. Also, MGMA, if you're a member of them, they're a big, big advocate for the physicians when it comes to reimbursement policies that may, may or may not be appropriate. So I would make sure that you do reach out to your local medical or to the, that um, body of um, voice for you. They're a lobbying effort. Somebody else put in there, Deb, thank you. So obviously the payers are not even paying attention to the fact that the claim is totally different diagnoses for the ENM versus the procedure code. It's interesting that you say that because the 25 modifier doesn't even say, says you don't even need a different diagnosis. But remember, there is a Medicare provision that talks about the pre and post work of a procedure or service, a minor procedure that has a 10-day global, which means that you can't always just bill or add on an ENM service. You have to reflect that it is a completely different workup or scenario, different body parts. They're really targeting right now in the OIG work plan dermatology, but for other specialties as well, you have to make sure that your ENM service can stand alone. And if it can't do that, remember you have to take out any pre and post work for the procedure, then it would be inappropriate to report it. But to have a blanket policy doesn't make sense, especially because again, the RVUs have not gone down. We also received a comment from Dr. Ron Hirsch uh, of Rack Monitor. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. He said that there was word that the ACEP now on the Twitter yesterday said that the Tennessee Medical Association were, was informed that the 25 modifier policy of having to add documentation looks like it's been delayed and will not be implemented in August 2022. But they keep an eye on that because they were pretty uh, adamant that they wanted something to reflect uh, the 25 modifier and how they're going to manage claims that are not appropriate. And so make sure you're always looking at their website. My big advice to you is the fact that you signed a contract with your commercial plans. And if you are not being able to negotiate that contract and they are adding in things to your contract, then you need to be able to be a voice and fight that contract. You need to say, wait, we've already signed this contract. This is already negotiated on how you were going to reimburse. And now you're saying you're just arbitrarily adding things. That's the problem. And with that, back to you, Tennis. And that's going to be a wrap for our 512th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. I want to thank our panelists today, Lori Johnson, Timothy Powell, Dr. John Zellum, and Terry Fletcher, who reported on our special report on Modifier 25. And a special thank you to my guest co-host, Susan Gatehouse. Remember, you can listen to all the Talk 10 Tuesday broadcasts on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us and give us a review. Until next Tuesday, I'm Dennis Jones, standing in for Chuck Buck, reporting for Talk 10 Tuesdays and ICD-10 Monitor. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor. <laughs>